Join me in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have week after week to gather in this place to hear your word taught. Lord, in many respects, it is a sanctuary from a lost and dying world that bombards us time and time again with messages that are contrary to Scripture and with hostility and venom directed towards the simple truths of Scripture. And yet, Lord, when we come here, we have freedom to worship, we have freedom to fellowship with one another, and we just thank you, Lord, for that privilege. Pray that we wouldn't take it for granted and that we would not just listen to your word week after week from the teaching that's offered, but that we would attempt in the power of your spirit to apply the truths that we hear to our lives so that we would live differently than the world around us. I pray this morning for Joel as he comes and opens your word. I pray that the teaching would be filled by your spirit, that he would be empowered to speak truth, and that we would be given ears to hear so that we could apply it in our lives. Lord, we love you and we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a privilege to get the opportunity to teach in Faith Builders. I'm excited to do this. I know you guys get great teaching week in and week out, so thankful for the opportunity. Today we're going to be talking about babies. I know babies are kind of on my mind. I've got one at home. I guess she's kind of a toddler now. But anybody who's observed a baby or a toddler or even a little child, it's always interesting to see how they interact with new toys. They're so excited when they get a new toy. And they open up that new toy and they're thrilled and they're, I mean, they just, it's the best thing in the world, right? And then after about five minutes, if it's a baby, maybe even less than that, it's on to the next thing, right? And then that cycle continues and it's on to the next thing. And especially if it's good to chew on, I mean, that's great. That's the best. But they just continue that over and over and over. And if they're a little older, like my three-year-old daughter, she We'll spend a little more time with new toys, maybe a half hour, and then it's on to the next thing and the next thing. And then occasionally you'll find that a child likes you know, a favorite toy, maybe a favorite blanket or a favorite stuffed animal. This is their favorite, so they sleep with it, they drag it around the house, get it all dirty all the time, but it's their favorite. But most of the time, even their favorites lose their luster over time. When they get older... Children, I know I personally, when I got older, I, I used to love stuffed animals as a kid. As I got older, I realized oh, this isn't very cool to have stuffed animals. So maybe I'll hide my stuffed animals. And kids tend to do that. The question is, though, does this type of thing happen to us in regards to salvation? Does this joy and wonder at God's mercy and grace toward us in Christ Jesus just become kind of another big event in our lives that we slip into our back pocket after the newness of it wears off? Does the impact of the gospel on our lives kind of fade into the rearview mirror when, when there's trouble in our lives, when we're going through trials? This has probably happened to all of us at some point in our lives as believers, especially if we've followed Christ for any number of years. And this seems to be something that the readers of Peter's letter um, were experiencing in 1 Peter. Let's go ahead and turn over in your, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 
verse 10, and we'll look at the text that we're going to be studying this morning. 1 Peter 1.10 As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So the focus of our study today is going to be on the greatness of our salvation. Let's look first at the background to this passage and get a little context before we dive into verses 10 through 12. Peter is writing to a group of believers who were experiencing great trials due to persecution that they were suffering in the midst of a culture that was very hostile towards Christians. Christians were the minority. I mean, the church was just kind of taken off. And if you look at the beginning of 1 Peter, in verse 1 of chapter 1, Peter describes the recipients of his epistle as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, places which we would now call modern-day Turkey. So these people were believers in Christ, so they're now sojourners on the earth. The earth is not their home, but they're living in the midst of a pagan culture that worshipped many idols and was either leery of Christians or downright hostile towards them. It's possible that this book was written uh, right after the burning of Rome when Emperor Nero blamed the Christians for the burning of the city, and he used his excuse, even though he was the one who set Rome on fire, he used that excuse to wage a persecution against followers of Christ. Now, it was either right after that or it was right before it, but it's right around this time when this letter was written. We're not sure But we can be certain that the readers of this letter were under fierce opposition. Uh, Just a couple of examples in in the letter. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So there was, this ordeal was described as fiery. I wouldn't really use that word lightly, but obviously this was a fierce persecution they were experiencing. Chapter 3, verse 13, another example. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And it continues on, describes what they're experiencing as being slandered, being reviled for their good behavior. Um, They were going through some some things. So in light of the circumstances that are surrounding these believers, Peter begins his letter in verse 1 and 2 by making it very clear that these believers were chosen by God, set apart as holy by the Holy Spirit to obey their Savior who had cleansed them with his blood. So he's assuring them, in the midst of your torment, in the midst of your persecution, that they are God's chosen. That they have been washed clean and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And then in verses 3 through 5, the apostle swells with praise 
for the great mercy God showed in bringing their dead hearts to life and in securing an inheritance for them that can't be destroyed. See, these people probably had property that was destroyed or things taken from them, whatever it may be, and they feared. They feared for their lives. They feared for their families. But he's reminding them that their inheritance in heaven is secure. It can't be taken from them. Nothing can steal it from them. They, they could be killed, but their inheritance is still there waiting for them because God is protecting it for them and protecting them for it. Then in verse 6, we see kind of the lead up to our text. And Peter describes some of the reasons for God bringing trials into our lives. He reminds the readers that when you have faith, not only can you endure hardship and trials, but you can rejoice knowing that you are secure in Christ and nothing can separate you from Christ's love. It's sometimes necessary for God to refine us and test us so as to sanctify us through trials. And he has promised that he will refine us and make us more like Christ. Philippians 1.6 says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The fruit of faith in verse 8 is that you love and believe in Jesus even though you haven't seen him. Hebrews 11.1 1 which I'm sure you guys have studied a lot recently. Hebrews 11.1 describes faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So we believe in Christ, and we love Christ, even though we haven't seen him. But we long and we look forward to that day when we will see him face to face. And that is the ultimate end of faith. That's the ultimate outcome of faith described in verse 9. It's the salvation of our souls. That's the outcome of faith. A salvation that is greater and richer than anything we can think about. And this morning we are going to delve into four examples of the greatness of our salvation. Four examples of the greatness of our salvation. The first example of our salvation and its grandeur, is that salvation is a gift of grace. Salvation is a gift of grace. Look at verse 10 again. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied concerning the grace that would come to you. So Peter, in effect here, is saying that grace is synonymous with salvation. Without grace, there's no salvation. He first mentions the word salvation and how the Old Testament prophets prophesied about it. But instead of using the word salvation the second time, he says concerning the grace that would come to you. So why is grace so important? Why is it necessary for salvation? Why is it so great? In this day and age, grace is a word that's often used to describe this kind of laid back attitude towards life and even towards sin. If someone is gracious, they're just not too judgmental of others and they don't give themselves too hard of a time if they mess up. Sometimes grace is confused for something that is tolerant of sin. But is that the grace of the Bible? What is the real meaning of grace? God's grace. Peter uses the word grace ten times in the book of 1 Peter, so it had to have been important. 
in the concept that he wanted his readers to grasp. Grace, or charis, as it's used in the Greek here, means unmerited or undeserved favor. So God has given us something that we don't deserve, that we did not earn. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which is the quintessential passage on grace, says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. God's grace, his favor and love in action was not something that we worked for because we could not earn it. It was unmerited favor from God. Our deeds had earned us death, but God's grace provides us eternal life in Christ. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we had earned, death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The grace that came to us in the context here in 1 Peter is actually referring to the appearing of Jesus to save sinners. God's grace was manifest in the person of Jesus entering the sin-filled world to suffer and conquer sin and death for believers. John 1:14 says, "And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth." God is the epitome of gracious, and so it makes sense that Jesus, the Word who is God, is full of grace. Jesus is the epitome of grace. When you think about how the creator of the world became a baby who not only knew everything about the mom who held him and rocked him as a child, but also was the one who made her and who was going to save her through his death. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. Jesus was the greatest gift of grace. The world did not deserve him, and when he came, he was rejected by most. Titus 2, 11 through 13, describes Jesus' arrival on earth in this way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The grace of God appeared through Jesus, bringing salvation to all types of people, both Jews and Gentiles, and he's coming again. Just the fact that our Creator has stooped to lower Himself to enter our world is a gift of grace. But when we think about the full effect of Christ's life and death, we begin to see more fully how great that grace is. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died. In the midst of our disobeying God, in the midst of our hating God, Christ died. Not in the midst of our seeking him. So what is the extent of our sin? Each of us knows we sin, but I don't think we will ever truly understand our depravity until we stand in the presence of the holy God. But while we're here on earth, we're growing in Christ, and the more we grow, the more we see how sinful we are and how gracious God is in saving us. 
And until we have a better understanding of our sin and our complete and utter lostness without Christ, we won't fully appreciate our salvation. It's not as if God's grace kind of gives good people a boost in the direction of eternal life. No, we were utterly and totally sinful without Christ. We had no ability to come to him. Romans 3:10 through 12 says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. We were useless before Christ. All that we did was useless, worthless, wicked, evil. But God saved us by giving us his grace in giving us Jesus. The fullness of grace, undeserved favor in the person of Jesus Christ. So grace is the first example of the greatness of our salvation. And the second example of the greatness of our salvation is in verse 10. Let's continue there. The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So the second example of the greatness of our salvation is that our salvation was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. Our salvation was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. I think it's often very easy for us to overlook the Old Testament and its narratives and books of the law because we're not under the law. We're under grace, just like we've been talking about. But God gave us his word in the Old Testament for a reason. And the prophets of the Old Testament endured a lot of suffering to deliver God's message. So what was that message? What did the prophets make known? They made known God's law that pointed to the need for grace. They made known God's ceremonies that pointed to the need for a Savior to fulfill each symbol of each ceremony. They made known prophecies that foretold of a coming Savior who would suffer and die so that not only Jews might be saved, but even Gentiles. All of these messages they told were not their own words, but the Holy Spirit's. Second Peter 1.20 says, But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So God gave the Old Testament saints and now us his words through these prophets for a very important reason, to point us to Christ. All of history points to Christ. History began by Christ. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then after creation, when man fell in the garden, the first sin, what happens? The Messiah was prophesied. In Genesis 3.15 we read, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God talking to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. 
the seed of the woman who is Christ. We already see the first prophecy. Moses, who wrote Genesis, was prophesying about Jesus. And in 1 Peter verse 11, we see that the prophets not only prophesied of our salvation, but they also predicted specifics concerning Christ's suffering and the glories to follow. The Spirit of Christ, which is the Holy Spirit, was indicating to them that the Savior would suffer and that glories would follow that. So what are these glories that follow? Well, the resurrection, Christ's ascension into heaven, his sitting on the throne at the right hand of God in the throne room, and also the future glories to come when he comes again. The prophets foretold of these things, and most of them have already been fulfilled in Christ. What a wealth of scripture that we can search and look into to better understand our salvation. I'm just going to read off real quick a couple of references from the Old Testament that predicted Christ's sufferings and the glories that followed. And you may just want to jot these down. If you don't want to jot them down, I actually have behind me some papers with all the references for you if you want to look at them afterward. But these are just a few prophecies that reference Christ's suffering in the Old Testament. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21. Psalm 69, verse 9. And verse 21, Psalm 88, Isaiah 52, 13 through 14, Isaiah 53, 1 through 10, Daniel 9, 24 through 26, and Zechariah 13, 7. That's just a handful of them. And then here are a few references that speak of the glories that followed Christ's crucifixion. Genesis 3, 15, which we just read, Genesis 49, 10. Psalm 22, 22 through 31, Psalm 69, 30 through 36, Psalm 110, Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, Isaiah 49, 6, Isaiah 53, 11 through 12, and Zechariah 8, 18 through 21. That's a lot. Okay, I'll give you a list afterwards. I went a little fast there. I apologize. <laughs> but that's a lot of scripture that we have talking about Christ in the Old Testament. And that's just a handful of them. There's a lot to study there. But it's just evidence, again, that the focal point of history is Jesus Christ. Our salvation has been predicted, and it has come to pass just as the prophets said it would. We can rejoice seeing the fullness of Christ's suffering and why he had to suffer and how he suffered, knowing that it was by his stripes that we are healed. And we should study these Old Testament prophecies more to gain a better understanding of our salvation. I'd encourage you all to go back and listen through Pastor Steve's sermon on Psalm 22. Excellent series on the sufferings of Christ. When he taught it, I mean, it just blew me away. But what a great series to go through again to really understand the prophecies about Christ. Um, it's just incredible. So the first two examples we have of the greatness of our salvation are that salvation is a gift of grace and salvation was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. The third example is that salvation's fulfillment was sought after by the Old Testament prophets but was given to us. Salvation's fulfillment was sought after by the Old Testament prophets but was given to us. Peter says... The prophets 
who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. It's interesting here that the word used for careful searches in the Greek, which I'm not even going to try to pronounce for you, but you'll just have to trust me, The Greek word used for careful searches gives the idea of not only seeking something out, but exhausting every resource to seek the meaning out. So the prophets didn't just think to themselves, oh, that's interesting, as they were given God's message about salvation. They wanted to know, what what is the Holy Spirit talking about? They put great effort into finding out what the sufferings meant and what what were these glories that would happen afterward. Their zeal to know God's word is humbling. I just recently read through the Old Testament and I found myself many times thinking, oh man, I need to take a mental note of this passage and, and look into it more and delve into it more. And on occasion I did, but often I did not go back and delve into those passages again. And it's something that I need to go back and do more thoroughly and more consistently. And if you look at the example of the prophets and how they studied God's word, they didn't even have the resources that we have now. They didn't have the internet, much less the printing press. Yet they studied the word with every resource they had to know God's promises, to learn what is the salvation that's predicted. We need to do that. We have so many resources that so often we we don't even touch or use or take advantage of. We have great commentaries by men like John MacArthur and James Montgomery Boyce and Martin Lloyd-Jones, just to name a few of Pastor Steve's favorites, but there's many others. We have the internet, which has libraries of commentaries that we can go through. We have The internet, which helps us with Greek words, if we want to study the words and their meanings, if we're not a Greek scholar. I'm not a Greek scholar. I need those resources. But most of all, we have the completed canon of Scripture. The prophets didn't. Ultimately, we have everything that we need right here in God's Word. 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says, Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. So that verse is saying we have everything that we need right here for life. Yet the prophets didn't. They had small chunks of scripture. I mean, Moses didn't have anything. But they still studied hard. They researched. They prayed. If you want to read through an example in scripture of one of the prophets searching out the meaning of the prophecy he was given, read through Daniel chapter 8, verse 27, and then go all the way into Daniel chapter 9 and read through that. And in the conclusion of it is in Daniel chapter 12. There's a whole bunch of prophecies in there. But I don't have time to read it now, but here it is in a nutshell. Daniel didn't understand. He was given a vision, and he didn't understand it. So he sought the Lord in prayer. And then 
He studied the prophecies of the Old Testament that he did have, and he even repented of sin so as to make sure that his heart was pure before God so that he could be listening to the Lord. Those are things we need to do. We need to study the Word. We need to pray, ask God to illuminate His Word to us. And we need to make sure we're confessing our sin. Because so often we go in with, you know, our mind is not in the right place because we're, we're focused on ourselves. And then Daniel did all those things and God answered him. He answered his prayer and gave him another vision, which he still didn't fully understand. But he did everything he, he could to figure it out. He sought the Lord. We should do this. He repented of sin. We need to do this. And he studied hard. Yet, the culmination of salvation wasn't revealed to him or any of the Old Testament prophets because it was for us. God showed them they were serving us. The fulfillment of salvation in Christ was for the church, not the Old Testament saints. They believed God, And it was credited to them as righteousness, but they didn't receive the promise. It was for us. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. You you didn't think you'd be in Hebrews again this morning. Hebrews 11 verse 32. And let's look at what the writer of Hebrews describes. The promise of salvation and how it was given to us. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. These men and women of the Old Testament suffered greatly for the Lord, and yet did not receive the promise. It was for us. Peter reminds his readers of this. The Old Testament prophets suffered for their faith in God, and it was reckoned to them as righteousness, yet they didn't know Christ. When we suffer, when we go through trials, we have the fullness of Christ's work to lean on and to benefit from. God has revealed himself in many ways, but not until this age has he revealed his salvation through Christ. Hebrews 1.1 says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. God revealed himself through the person of Jesus. What an incredible gift. Our salvation is fulfilled. The promise of salvation has been fulfilled by Christ for us, the church. 
Let's not take that for granted. So we've looked at the first three examples of the greatness of our salvation. Once again, the first example, salvation is a gift of grace. And the second, salvation was predicted by the Old Testament prophets. And then the third, salvation's fulfillment was sought after by the Old Testament prophets, but was given to us. Now the last example is that salvation is even a mystery to angels. Salvation is even a mystery to angels. Peter says that even the angels long to look into our salvation. The word look has the connotation of stooping to look down into something as Peter did when he looked down into the empty tomb in Luke 24. And the word long means to fix the desire upon. It's in the present tense, which means it's, it's an ongoing desire to look into something. The angels have a continuous desire to understand the mysteries of salvation. Even though they stand in God's presence daily and serve him continually, and even though they know many things that we don't know, still salvation is something that they long to understand. Because salvation is only for mankind not for angels. Though angels are moral creatures like we are, when Satan and the demons sinned, they immediately were cast out of heaven. And as we know, they have no hope for salvation, but will be punished eternally in the lake of fire. Second Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And then, the final example in Revelation 20:10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet also are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So any angel that sinned had no hope. They were either cast into pits of gloom, reserved for judgment, i.e. the lake of fire, or, like Satan, they're allowed to roam the earth, causing trouble until ultimately they will be defeated by Christ, as we saw in Revelation 20, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire. There is no salvation for angels, but God provided salvation for us, and at great cost. He became a man and suffered the horrors of the crucifixion on top of having the wrath of God the Father poured out on him on our behalf. God's plan was to make known the riches of the mystery of salvation to angels through the church, through us. Ephesians 3.9 says, And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages had been hidden in God, who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In God's wisdom, he is unfolding the glories of his salvation to the heavenly principalities, the angels, through us. Even though the angels stand in God's presence, those who haven't sinned, and they behold his glory, they still don't fully grasp the glory of salvation. Even though they are powerful beings who know way more about God than we do at this time, they still long to peer into salvation. Peter says they have a great fascination with it. What a privilege 
that we have in fully understanding, experiencing, and enjoying our salvation. So we've looked at the four examples of the greatness of our salvation. Now the question is, what do we do with this? What do we do with the truth that salvation is the gift of grace to us? Do we look at this grace as a license to sin? As Paul says in Romans 6, no, may it never be. God's grace toward us should be the motivation for us to obey him more out of gratitude. In looking at ourselves truly through the lens of scripture and our utter sinfulness, we should be so humbled that we do whatever it takes to kill sin now and to obey Christ and serve him now. I think this is the crux of the difference between salvation in Christ and every other man-made religion. All other religions espouse man's working their way to heaven and their ability to do something to get to heaven. But God has shown us in his word that it is his grace in the person of Jesus that is the only thing that can save us. And now we serve him, not because we have to do all these things to earn our way to heaven. We serve him because we love him. And we're so thankful. We're so thankful. That's why we serve him. Not because we're checking off a to-do list of getting our way to heaven. We can't. So what do we do in response to the fact that salvation was predicted by the Old Testament prophets? I think this should give us a great desire to study the Old Testament more thoroughly so that we can praise God again for the fulfillment of the prophecies in Christ. Like I said, I have those references for you if you want to grab some. I've got a bunch of copies up here of all the references that pertain to the prophecies about Christ and his suffering and the prophecies of the glories that follow the crucifixion. But this should cause us to rejoice. We should rejoice in the fact that God has foretold beforehand through the prophets what was going to happen and now it's come true in Christ, and it has changed our lives forever. And so what is our response to the fact that salvation was sought after by the prophets, and it's even longed for, it's intensely searched out by the angels, but it was given to us. First off, I think this should cause us to study and take advantage of every resource we have, like the Old Testament prophets did, to understand God's word. We have all that we need. We have the completed scriptures and we have so many more resources that we can take advantage of. So let's do it. Let's study hard so that we can really fully appreciate God's salvation and then live in gratitude to him. I think the crux of the matter is that no matter what we go through, just like these readers were going through trials, when we're going through the midst of trials, or even when we're just having a rough day, if we keep salvation at the forefront of our minds, it changes everything. That's what Peter wanted his readers to do. He wanted them to remember their first love and the joy of their salvation, just like a toddler enjoys their favorite blanket. Let's remember our great salvation every single day. And fix our hope on Christ when everything around us is crumbling. Because he never crumbles. And he holds us in his hands until we see him face to face. Please join me in prayer. Father, 
we are astounded as we look into your word and we see the greatness and the grandeur of the salvation you have provided in Jesus Christ. We're in awe that you would love us in spite of our sinfulness, in spite of our depravity, and that you would come to earth, live amongst us a perfect life, and then die and take the wrath against our sin in our place. Lord, help this salvation to be at the forefront of our minds. Help it not to fade into the background. Help it to be the driving force in our lives. May it be the thing that we come back to again and again when we're struggling, when we feel like we're going through a dry spell. Help us to look at your gospel, to look at what Christ has done, and to look at your grace and just praise you and recognize that we can have joy in you no matter what because we're secure. Nothing can take that joy away because you hold us. We don't hold ourselves. You hold us. You protect us till the end until we see you face to face. Thank you for your salvation. Help us to study hard. Help us to study the Old Testament to really appreciate the prophecies and how Christ fulfilled them. Help us to study your word so that we might be faithful, so that we might know what you want us to do because we want to do it because of your salvation, because you have saved us, because we're grateful. I pray that our salvation would impact our lives and that we wouldn't just let it fade into the background. Thank you for your word. Thank you for how it changes us. And I pray that it would do that in your name. Amen.